Welcome to another episode of Fintech Insider brought to you by 11FS. My name's Sam Mall, and by now, if you don't know my job title, you haven't been listening, so shame on you. I'm joined by my 11FS media team colleagues, Ollie Judge and Michael Bailey, and we are in San Francisco. Michael is really loved this. He wants to move here because he lives in Jury, England, even though I want to move back to England, and I like it. The weather in San Francisco today was actually beautiful, so we hit the one day out of the year where we didn't have to Whoa. wear a jacket. No, no, no. Sorry, guys. I've been here too many times. Down. The weather, the weather has been incredible. I think it's supposed to rain the next two days. So that's that's San Francisco for you. So the what we're doing today, we're doing our fintech in a flat. And Ollie Judge, who's the head of our media group, actually came up with this concept while we were in Toronto. We we're at Cybos, I think, last November or something like that. We were sitting around the kitchen island on the 53rd floor of the Toronto Ice Towers in our Airbnb condo. And I remember we were sitting there discussing different venue ideas to host the shows we'd be recording that week. And I mentioned to Ollie and Michael, my favorite conversations were off mic, usually around the dinner table or drinking a beer or two with friends. And we couldn't think of a place to record. And then I remember Ollie looking directly at me and saying, fintech in a flat. Actually, he gave the air quotes, fintech in a flat. And bazinga, boom, we got an idea for an episode. And it was born and we have never looked back. So the good news is Ollie Judge can cook. He can also cut his finger off, which he did when he was making the whatever you made, the tacos tonight. But he can cook. So for these shows, we let Ollie cook. We buy beer. And we are drinking Einstock Icelandic white ale, which is very fine. And we've all enjoyed that. And we go and we get fintech subject matter experts from whatever city we're in. We bring them in. We sit around the table. We eat. We drink. And we do an episode. So that's what we're doing tonight. So we have already set up. Basically, Ollie Judge cooked. I do the dishes, and Michael Bailey plays Xbox upstairs. It's just like being at home for me. So that's the scene. We've eaten. We've had a good home-cooked meal at Fish Tacos. Thank you, Ollie. We've had a couple of beers. We've got a group sitting around the table, and we're ready to record. We actually have an audience. Hi, John. Word. Word. Word up. And we're getting ready to start. So let's introduce our guests. So the first guest we have is Shil Amnat. Did I say your last name right? No. Not even close. No, no. Say it for me. Shil Amnat. Minot. Yeah, you were, you were close. Um, Come on, M not. M not. I wrote it phonetically as M not Minot. Yeah, yeah, close enough. All right. I, I, everyone knows I slaughter names, but Shields, one of the partners at 500 Startups, based on the fintech side, right? And InsureTech. Yeah, InsureTech, okay. fintech. Yeah, it's all the same. Then we have Betsy McCormick from Nova Credit. Did I get that right? That's great. All right, there you go. Shields. Much easier. Than yeah, you're the only one who could get wrong. <laughs> <laughs> we have Michael Casey from. The blockchain? Where do I say you're from? The blockchain, yeah. I'm, I, I am actually embedded, hashed into the blockchain. You're like That's Tron. You're, you're Jeff Bridges. Tron, yeah. I don't know about Tron. I, I think more like Deadpool or something like that. But. Oh, I like that. That's actually pretty good. I don't get the analogy, but I like it. All right. And then we have Jason Zaller from, is, you call it Ping An? Uh, it's Zaler from Ping An. So it's flip, your, I'm flip your vowel pronunciation, accent aigu, accent grave, and you'll be good. <laughs> Jason and I are like good friends, and I just said his last name wrong. So here's a little known fact. I wanted to hire Jason. He was one of the first people I wanted to hire because he's that talented, and timing's everything, right, Jason? I think you Timing did. is All everything. Right. Go to so, China during a trade war. More on that later. We will get to that topic. All right. So we've got a group sitting around the table that knows their stuff. We're going to get ready to dive into this. And again, we're going to do this as a State of the Union show. So we're going to start with San Francisco because that's where we're at. So there's an interesting article in Business Insider. It was titled, and this came out, I think, like two days ago. This is the title of the article. The San Francisco housing market is so dire that people are leaving in droves. So what they have said, and they actually did a... A, they, they looked this up, a study 
from the real estate site Redfin found that in San Francisco lost more residents than any other U.S. city in the last quarter of 2017, mainly because of the housing prices that are here. And so, Betsy, you've lived here like a decade, right? Yeah, 10 years. All right. And, and when I mentioned this, you said, yeah, I have a house. Do you want to buy it? Um, no, I was saying I, I'm trying to buy a house, so I'm one oh, of the few. Smart. The only one of the few who's, who's staying or trying to stay. So, do you think this is actually true? That that uh, this is a big story in the U.S. right now is how San Francisco everything is upside down. There's this big segmentation between tech, which is all of us at this table, and the everyday citizens. Is that an actual? Do you think that's reality? It feels it feels really real to me. I would love to hear the other opinions of the it's people here. It's not real. There we go. She's yeah, so. Redfin measures people based in San Francisco searching for homes elsewhere, and they put out this incredibly misleading statistic about people, more people leaving San Francisco. People are not actually leaving. People are looking for homes, which doesn't necessarily mean... Like, I, I own property here. I also own property in Pittsburgh, and I am constantly looking for more property in Pittsburgh. So I'm constantly searching on Redfin for property in Pittsburgh. Um, so people searching for property elsewhere doesn't necessarily make them. No, and I'm not debating the Redfin statistic or how it's measured. I guess my point was more that the divide between tech and non-tech feels really real. And I think there are a lot of people in the city who feel really left behind and who don't know how they're going to continue to live and work here. Like I, my partner and I have been working professionals for a decade and like we can't buy a house. And it's like, I don't know. And I have all my friends who are leaving and moving and and part of it makes me really sad, and maybe part of it's just growing up, and people want to want to have families and, and change their lifestyle. But it does that divide. I think is real. Absolutely, I think. I mean, well, we can go into like a deep political debate, <laughs> but no, we can. They don't. I mean, no one wants to let you build housing here. So can I build on that? She also. Um, so I'll take the middle ground. The the current average list price is nine hundred and ten thousand dollars, according to the Mercury News yesterday, and the uh, mean is over a million three. So what that means is that people in this city can't afford housing. Recently, um, Trent Griffin, who's a great follower on Twitter at, at Trent Griffin, if you like reading about business strategy, um, did a thing about a study that said an average SF family needed $3,000 a month for housing for a family of four, to which I laughed. And I put a screenshot of a search on uh, Zillow of current rentals available with two bedrooms for $3,000 or less and came up with 12 uh, in the entire city. 12 hits? 12 hits. And that was not including washer and dryer and unit, which if you had a little kid you might want, that was three hits. So there is a real crisis here that's going on. Um, Some of it's, I think, tech versus non-tech. But Shield's point... Everyone knows the expression, I think, NIMBY, not in my backyard. And San Francisco is the home of do not build that beautiful uh, tower that could house 200 families here because it'll block my view. Build it over there. Forget about 200 people. Just talk about like a five-story building once in a while or a three-story building. Like you can't build So is this why like in New York, this thing is, I mean, obviously similar phenomenon, right? You get this very expensive problem. But think what happens in New York is you get this concentric circle moving out. So people end up sort of Williamsburg, which was, you know, this never would live in that sort of place in Brooklyn, suddenly becomes the place to live. And people just move, the artists move in, they recover it, it gets gentrified. No one actually goes all the way to Austin or something like that. They just keep, and it it doesn't mean that it's not a problem. People end up in New Jersey, oh my God, or or, or some other part. That is bad though. That is bad. But but they, they they just shift further out. What is it about the absence of the stock, housing stock that makes people go, I'm out of the entire Bay Area, it's, it's I'm going to go not. somewhere else? So, 
So a couple things. One, uh, public transport in New York is much better than it is here. True. Um, Amen. But actually, if you want to, like, I'm playing my own devil, devil's advocate here because I think we need to fix housing in San Francisco by building a shitload more yes. property. But actually, if you want to BART somewhere, you could... I can find you a house under $100,000 that you would be okay living in that is bartable from downtown. So is, is BART like a, a derogatory term? I mean, to BART? Like, no, is it like- I think that it's the representation of a transit line's terminus point as a reasonable commute, which I, I get what you're saying. The, the challenge, I think, for people in our communities is that if you grew up in San Francisco and the housing in your neighborhood is up 50 to 70% in the last decade, particularly we're sitting in the western part of the city for those not watching on News Channel 8 uh, at their homes. We are in an area that is mostly single-family residential recording this podcast, but now folks are moving in here. There's Airbnb, like the one we're sitting in. So these people aren't necessarily, these ne- these neighbors aren't looking to move to the end of a BART line. They could. They're just, they're just not so looking there. You raised a good point, and I'm curious about this, because this is a big topic in like New York City and London, mm-hmm. that Airbnb is responsible for driving prices up so much. So I'm going to look at Shield because you're a big time investor. Would you in, in, in the angel yeah, side? Yeah, I, I don't doubt that Airbnb has has impacts on on housing on on the on the price of housing um, because obviously if you own a place and or if you if you're renting a place and can rent it out when you're not there, you can afford more. So undoubtedly, it increases the price. I don't think it's a drastic increase. I don't think it's by far like close to the cause of the problem we have right now. I think that like well, easily fixed by more housing, right? I mean, this is yeah. the thing. So whatever, whatever creation, whatever problem it creates can be solved by getting around the NIMBY exactly. problem, which I totally it's, I think rent yeah. control is really problemat- right. So it's problematic. Right. So it's 70%, I believe in the city, 70, 30% of city housing stock regularly comes up for rent. 70% is rent controlled, which so, can get preferably passed down. So I can explain how that works. Yeah. So basically, any uh, any multi-unit property built before 1979 is rent control. That's the vast majority of housing in San Francisco, uh, and it's almost and it's only multi-unit. So a single-family home is is not rent controlled, and if it was built after 1979 or condo converted after 1979, it's not rent controlled. I can give you an example. I own a I own a four-unit building in the Mission, and when I bought it, uh, and there are four bedrooms uh, each, and when I bought it. Um, in the two top units, there was, there was one person, one woman, the top unit living by herself. Uh, she was paying 1200 bucks a month in rent and for a four bedroom in San Francisco. Oh my God. And, uh, in the, in the second unit, the unit that I live in now, there was a couple who are paying $3,000 a month in rent <laughs> and for a four bedroom. Um, New York's very similar, by the way. There's some very weird numbers. You know, so this is interesting because in the room right now, all right. So three of us, three of you at the table. So Jason. Betsy, Sheil, you all, San Francisco, yeah, Ian's. I still said it wrong. Close enough. Okay, we're gonna go with that. SF. I like how you used SF. Evidently, SF is cool. San Fran's not, and Frisco's horrible. Unless you're Sheila, and then Frisco's. I awesome. think Frisco's cool. Okay. Frisco sounds so fucking cool. Okay, okay we're gonna, I like Frisco. Be cool? Mostly from you know Frisco, the Bay Area, and back down. Okay, yeah. so on that note, two of us. So Michael and I do not. I live in Florida, where my house would be worth thirty million. Here, right. Plus, you got to live in Florida, so it's offset with the nut championship nuts. golf, right? Yeah. yeah. But in the rest, so we have a bunch of people in the flat right now. So I'm curious. So Ollie and Michael, you live in London, and we hear about the cost that no one can know. Your age. <laughs> you called me your 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 work dad 
today. And you I'll are post. my work dad. Like, that, that's how it works. You yeah, it Michael's bed. Incredibly. So. Pain. I did make their bed in Toronto because we had this fintech in a flat and I was embarrassed because their beds weren't made, right? I'm, I'm OCD. But, but in London, that's one of the things, right? That, that nobody can get on the housing market when you're young. Yeah, definitely. Like right now, I would say it's as paralyzing as San Francisco. Like there's no way in. If, if you work at like a normal job, not big four accountancy firm, not like you're a high flying lawyer, like it, it, there is no way onto the first step at this point because it's half a million pounds. So, so I'm curious. So we, 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 housing in London is, is decreasing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point though. Hopefully. Hopefully. Well, so, only because of a particular phenomenon, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which we won't go there. So, so also in the room, though, Adrian, you're from Cape Town, right? Yeah. You get that right? So Ollie's going to wander over there. So Adrian from Ripple um, sitting watching us. Um, what, what, what is housing? I'm assuming Cape Town is literally, when you get to South Africa, when it comes to tech, you're the heart yeah. of it. Is, it. is it an issue, too, getting on the housing ladder there? So they're, they're trying to promote a kind of Silicon Cape initiative and build an industry there, but it's so early on. I mean, housing, it's not even comparable. Like I live in a four bedroom house with a garden and a pool and you would all be able to afford it. We don't want to hear, we don't want to hear what you're paying. You know, so <laughs> it's, right it's, it's not even comparable to London, New York. Or San There's one other, one other thing though, just real quick is geography. So we're on a peninsula. And a mile and a half of the western part of this, it's only seven by seven. A mile and a half of the western part is built on landfill. And half a mile of depth of the northern part is built on landfill all the way across. And so if you combine that with NIMBYism, with poorly zoned neighborhoods and the tech phenomenon, you can't expand it further into Queens, Brooklyn, the Bronx, or New Jersey because the infrastructure is so bad that... Oh, you can go to Oakland. No, I lived, I lived in Oakland. I wish I still lived in Oakland. I fell in love with the girl from San Francisco. I do think what's interesting about this question, though, even though you're absolutely right, that geography clearly does, right, There's, and, and, and housing laws and all these things, the, the sort of commonality of experience amongst kind of like, you know, certain Western wealthy cities has a global phenomenon to this, and there's actually a, there's actually a post-financial crisis aspect to it. Like I, I, back at the Wall Street Journal, used to write about this a lot. It's like we did... Enormous amounts of quantitative easing. Central banks pumped phenomenal amounts of loose money into financial assets. And a lot of it had to go somewhere. And, and a big chunk of it went into real estate. And so Chinese money, for example, had to go somewhere. It got, it, so Australia is, is, suffers from the same problem. Perth, which ha, where I'm from, has, has none of the kind of big city, you know, appeal you would think of San Francisco or London or New York. And yet we suffer from the same sorts of problems because all of the sort of Chinese money had to, had to go somewhere. There's a, there's a, there's a very interesting finance, global financial phenomenon here of like money chasing scarce assets. And, and those scarce, when it turns to about scarce assets in terms of real estate, they go to where the action is. And San Francisco is where the action is. And it just happens to be on a peninsula with no space. So, you actually can't separate these phenomenon from each other. They, they are part of a global trend of a lot of money being thrown at limited assets. Meanwhile, you know, the, the, the underclass who don't get access to all of that liquid, you know, money that's been thrown at these problems, 
they're stuck out of it, right? So it's a very bifurcated uh, global experience we're talking about here. Well, if you're in San Francisco, right, and and you're not in that tech community, or even if you are, you came, let's say, from a different country, you should reach out to Nova Credit there. I just gave you your oh, sales pitch. You. You'll like that. We'll have a link on Nova Credit for that. So I, I actually want to give John, John, Hi. from Austin, from, say the company. Casasa. Yes, it's an awesome name. But, so, so you're a head of innovation for a, 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 a fintech company, right? Yes, in Austin. Yes, are you seeing an influx of tech talent? Yes, sir, we are. We're doing our job to decrease your housing prices. <laughs> well, Austin, I mean, the prices have gone up, I don't know, like, it's been very good to be a house. Three or four X in the past decade for my Yeah, that's a good point. So here's the funniest thing. I'm going to give the last word on this, and then we got to move on. So this was a Business Insider article. So here's the towns where they said everybody's fleeing to, all right? And I'm not going to let you give commentary. I just wanted to throw them out there. So number 10 is Stockton, California, which makes me laugh because it's still here. Salt Lake City, which makes sense, right? Um, we, we know what's moved out there. Hawaii, I find that funny as hell. You left here to go to Hawaii? Business Insider, I question that. Um, and again, I think it's back to that Redfin study this is, is bullshit. Like bullshit. I know. We talking about it. Phoenix, Arizona. I got to talk about it because it's really cool. Phoenix, Arizona, <laughs> Las Vegas, eh. Austin, Texas, number five. Yeah. There he goes. Denver, Colorado. I can see that. Um, Sacramento, California. So again, we're staying in the state. Sorry, Trump. I had to go there. I'm sorry. Portland, Oregon, and then Seattle, Washington. So I, housing in Seattle, by the way, give me a break. So. The last thing I want to say, and then we'll move off the story, and Michael, make sure you get a pick of this. Here's how you know it's clickbait. Look at the picture they used. They picked the most generic hipster <laughs> San Francisco bearded dude they could for this. Yeah. That's the dumbest picture ever. That's All right. His name is actually generic hipster number one. Yeah, so uh, no. Uh, all right, so let's move off of that. Um, let's go to our second story. And this one actually, for me, is really interesting. Because Sheil, um, this is a podcast, and this is a very successful podcast. Fintech Insider's done incredibly well. Um, Ollie and, and team have built really a, a, a great engine, right? I think we have, we've put out a podcast every day, don't we? At this point, it feels like it. Uh, yeah, in Q1 of this year, we put out a podcast every working day. Okay, wow. so we are generating content, but also good content. To, to Michael, we had talked about this before we started dinner. Um, but Sheila, you've got a you've got a great story. I mean, you actually helped put together a podcast called The Pitch, yep. right? Which you actually sold to Gimlet. Yeah, we sold it uh, a little bit over a year ago, February of last year, and then we relaunched it under Gimlet in June. So, so can you one? How did you guys come up with the idea for the pitch? And can you describe it a little bit for the audience? Yeah, sure. So the pitch. Um, well, I'll just the story will be the same way that I describe it, which is basically. I was sitting at home watching Shark Tank, <laughs> and I thought, hey, this is so disconnected from reality. Uh, this is before I joined 500 Startups. I was uh, investing myself as an angel investor, and I thought, hey, why don't I just record my pitches with some companies? I don't know if that'd be interesting to people, but let's just see. And so it started out that way, and um, I found a guy, Josh Muccio who um, was doing another podcast related to Product Hunt, and I liked his voice and his editing. So um, he's actually in Florida. He's in uh, in uh, Tampa area. Um, we call it Trampa, by the way, yeah, when you live yeah, in Florida. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to slide right past <laughs> Um 
He's actually closer to St. Petersburg. I don't know if you've been yes, Saint Petersburg. derogatory name for that. But um, old people. Yeah. Old people. I'm 51. Let's we'll just get that out of the way. All right. Uh, I'm soon to be living in St. Petersburg. So I called him up and I said, hey, like, do you want to do this? And so he was out there. Um, I had never done this before, but I bought some equipment, whatever. The stuff that I read that they use in This American Life, I just bought it. And uh, I started interviewing people first in my house. Uh, as a studio, and then I got an office, and I had an office in Soma as a studio. Um, we ended up, I think, getting really lucky with two big things that drove an audience. Because, like, of course, like it's only interesting if there's an audience. It started out with literally just me and a microphone uh, interviewing people, and then Josh was editing it in Florida, and then it grew. So it was initially it was like founder pitching me or two founders pitching me. But it was just, I mean, you didn't have multiple. Within an episode, it was a pitch, right? A single pitch. Uh, and then I like we were that. experimenting with things. We sometimes would do two. Yeah. So it was a founder pitching me, and then there'd be one or two other people who I would send the pitch to, and they would give their feedback on it. And then we changed the style into two other people with me in the room, one or two other people with me in the room. Uh, taking the pitch together, and then we changed it to actually we started doing all day sessions in a recording studio. But you were coming up with multiple pitches this whole time, like you were just it these was, are all it, pitches you used to have. Out or one people, every two weeks, we but you would think of a new pitch, or you yeah, actually founders are pitching, founders are pitching, and then you would re and then you would re. And then I actually invested in several okay. companies. Several of the companies have done really, really well. Um, it was like 13 episodes, I think, the first season. Did I say that's that? Right. Yeah, something like that. So, and it's, it's funny how that evolved because here's the true story, and, and, and Ollie, you correct me if I'm wrong. When when 11FS got into this, we were like, how do we market? How do we get our yeah, name yeah. out there? And we're like, we'll do a podcast. And when you listen to the first podcast recording, Ollie wouldn't hear yet. Oh my God, right? It is God awful. I mean, our sorry, so David. Bad. I love you, David Breyer. Our sucked, the first one. Our but, sound was. Awful. Ollie, you can... Oh, no, no. This, this is worse. Like, so the, the system that was used for Fintech Insider episode one was effectively a conference phone line, but like real okay. phones. That's so, really yeah. Really yeah. No, it was we terrible. didn't do any research. Well, yeah, I bought the wrong mic. Basically, I bought a mic for that was supposed to pick up like all the noise in the room. So instead of the... like, So it's there's like dynamic and condenser mics. Yeah. And I bought the wrong type. And so it was picking up like street noise and all this stuff. And we had recorded like for several hours before we realized this. You know what, you know what though? So think about the story you just gave, right? And I'm looking at the rest of the table here for this. Doesn't it sound like a, a startup company, right? Nope. Uh, kind of a concept. Yeah. A pivot. You grow, you, you get the tech better, right? Yeah. A, a good, a good, let me, let me, by the way, this is a Nova credit. This is a, did you yeah. like that? That's two. Yeah. yeah well. Write the check to Sam Ma. Yeah. But, but it, it is. It's a fintech story, if you will, a success story on yeah. how it evolved. You even got acquired, yeah. if you will. And, and also, and then we went through the process of like getting subscribers. So we were like, who's going to listen to this? Um, You'd be at surprised. First it was just my friends. And then actually, the big break was um, product hunt, actually. So this is now uh, two and a half years ago. We went on product. We put it out on product hunt. Actually, somebody else put it out on product hunt. Ended up being the highest voted of that day, and then that week, and then that month. So we got a ton. We actually got ten thousand subscribers. Wow! Uh, from that, which was which was huge. 
Right. But like to build off the back of that, we launched our second show, which was the first show that I'd ever launched like within the network blockchain insider on Product Hunt, and that's where we got our like first groundswell. Yeah. So episode one, like Product Hunt is a so, pretty good place. If you're listening, yeah. aspiring podcasters, okay. well, it's no longer as good, unfortunately. Sorry, Ryan. <laughs> um, it's because now they have a podcast delegated to a section, which I don't think anybody really looks at as much. But back then, we were the number one out of all the all products. products. Yeah. Um, so it was huge, like 10,000 subscribers. So every episode we put out, we were instantly 10,000 people downloading it, yeah. which was cool. And then, and then sort of the next thing that we got was a Apple feature that sort of came out. Apple sent us a note. Actually, a couple of people. So when we launched, I was like, oh, I've been listening to the startup podcast by Gimlet, and I emailed, Alec, I emailed all these people. I was like, hey, listen to this show and then you know nobody responded um later on i found out they actually were listening to our show which is kind of cool and then we got an apple feature so uh that was actually huge um we were like if you open the podcast app we were like at the top for uh over a week mm, I and, think, and and holly correct me if i'm wrong and Shil, you've gone through the experience i think what i find interesting is, is finding and again it gets back to to fintech the concept of it mike yeah. dudas i always give mike a shout out and he's going to tell me his name's not dudas it's dudas or something stupid mike i love you i'm going with dude ass just because you know he never shows up but i love mike um he told me this once he was back when he was at braintree right yeah. and doing venmo and he goes if you really want to do a startup you find do, go narrow and deep right pick something that is very narrow in what it is but has an incredibly a lot of depth to it and so like the pitch is perfect right yeah. oh you guys got that pitch perfect? Anybody? Nobody. John, are you listening in the living room? I just said pitch perfect, and I worked it in. And I thought it was really funny. No, there's a pitch perfect three, and it's really good. But anyways, great movies. Thank you, thank you. Over, underrated, but still, it's the idea of very narrow in its focus, right? And the audience that you, I mean, for us, as my 16 year old daughter would say, we're very popular with a group of nerds, right? I mean, we we have a Great global audience, but it's very focused. But it's but that's great. Can yeah, I ask a question? Yeah. So I have a dirty confession. This is the radio equivalent of first time, long time. But instead of being first time listener or first time caller, long time listener, I'm a first time participant and second or third time overall listener. So I don't know your yeah. podcast like I should. So mea culpa, that's on me. That's all right. You can leave the what, doors that way. What I was going to ask both of you guys, to Shio and to Sam, are there recurring features. So a lot of the podcasts I love have little bits or gimmicks or features that come up every week or every episode. Like what are the things you've done to engage the audience so they know what to expect, they know what's coming? Because to me, yeah. that's my favorite part of podcast magic. Mm -hmm. Ollie, yeah, go for it. Okay, first thing, you said radio. Bad, bad, bad thing that you just said there. Not radio show, we're a podcast. Uh, <laughs> no, number two, like it, it's not, I don't think it's segments and gimmicks. I think it's podcasts are a little bit of a different thing to TV or just watching Netflix, which is different from TV. <laughs> the, 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 the whole thing is that we're probably the most intimate form of media at this point. We're spending sure. hours in your ear every week. Yeah. And the, the skill behind podcasting is storytelling. It's, um, it, it's finding a unique voice that people can get behind. Um, and I don't like within podcasting, there's 
a million different formats and a lot of them work but I, I think when you start to try and copy someone else or you try to identify like little segments of gimmicks that's where you fall apart so so at the table right now and, and michael i'm looking at you because you've become a take this as a compliment you've become a personal brand right um, for our listeners, just Google John Oliver on cryptocurrency, and you'll see Michael Casey. And he didn't even know he was going to be in that, yeah, that's right. thing. But you have through the through the books and everyone else. But you have become a a brand. Oh, that was you, BitConnect, BitConnect. That was big, BitConnect. Oh my God, there's yeah. the meme for this. We just ate. Hey, that's the name of this episode, by the way. Can what's we do what's that? What's what's that? We'll get some money yeah, yeah. to, to I make am that. Marco, whatever that guy's yeah. name was, Marco. Michael, Marco. On that point, this, this concept of storytelling, I think that is a, and thanks for going there. I think that the idea of the importance of storytelling when it comes to brand. So, um, Betsy, I'm thinking like Nova Credit, right? I'm thinking of Casasa and any of the new startups and, and, and even a global powerhouse like you work for, Jason, right? The, the importance of storytelling behind that, I think that's an incredible part of of the industry you're in right now. And I think companies that ignore that are foolish. Oh, it just, it just uh, melts my heart because that's the industry that I came from. I'm a journalist, right? So, the, I, so I basically have made my living writing stories. And one of the things that, that journalists think we are, at least in regular state old mainstream journalism, think that we are in is some crisis in which the, the art of storytelling has been destroyed by the lack of attention. When I look at the podcast industry, I just think, are you kidding me? There's this renaissance of belief in the engagement of the story, the, the connection between the storyteller and the human being. You know, I, I really think this is, I think that the podcast phenomenon to me is just an absolute joy because it speaks to the fact that human beings still demand that connectivity. So, so that's, that's one point. But I also think to your, to your other point about storytelling as, as brand and as, as connectivity, um, I don't think we've ever been in a moment in which it's it's all the more important. Um, and precisely because we've got so much programmatic delivery of ideas right now, we've got everybody running so many data analytics on everything as if, you know, the only way to reach uh, the right audience is to make sure you package it within this certain structure, right? I actually saw a, uh, an interesting uh, advice thing about the how unbelievably predictable every campaign ad is. And this is one group that are doing this completely different storytelling thing, and they're changing the nature of campaign ads, right? So because of the fact that we've got all of this structure dictated by data analytics as to how to like feed information, Suddenly storytelling, which is this loose form art of just, just getting to the heart of who we are and speaking to our creativity, being actually human is, is compelling, right? So it's beautiful. I'm, I'm, I think it's wonderful. Well, I think it's, uh, here's, here's what I'll say because we, we've got to actually go to our sponsors for this so we can do this podcast. Despite what Shil said, you should go listen to the pitch. It's still good. Come on, man. Oh, I never said it wasn't good. It's, it's, it's great. It's not as good as season one when he was on. No, it's still good. It's a oh, very no, no. good show. It's great. Uh, it's a phenomenal show. You should, you should definitely be listening. And, and we want to put some links out to it. Here's what I would say about podcasts as, as a whole. If you don't think they have impact, and, this, and then we're going to throw it a break. Serial, the first season of it. Oh, they, yeah. That entire one that they did, the, the individual show. that it was all based on is getting a new trial because yeah. of that. So if you don't think podcasts have an impact and can change the world, they do. And you should listen to Fintech Insider. You should definitely listen to Connection Interrupted. Man, that one is the guy who hosts that. 
one, he's very good looking. Two, his voice is incredible. And the stories, Sam Mule or something like that. And now on that, we've got to throw to a break. And we're going to give our... Like the, uh, like the animal? Maybe it's Sam Mall. I can't remember, but I think it's fantastic. Like, uh, like the shopping mall. It's very Yes, like a shopping mall. Yeah. All right. We're going to throw to our sponsors and we're all going to get another drink. Great. Awesome. And we are going to get another drink and then we'll start back up. We wanted to let you know that if you love this show, how about seeing it live? We're going to be at Money 2020 Europe in Amsterdam this June, and we're bringing Fintech Insider live with us. We'll be bringing the podcast to the main stage right before the drinks reception, and you can be there. Sign up for tickets now. Go to europe.money2020.com forward slash register and use discount code 1811FS. That's 1811FS to get 200 euros off the ticket price. All right, welcome back to Fintech Insider. This is our State of the Union show. We are recording in San Francisco in a neighborhood that I don't know. What neighborhood are we in, Jason? What is this? You're, in the, you're in the sunset. Oh, I'm just sunset. All I know is a lot of Chinese restaurants. This doesn't sound like a San Francisco name, sunset. Outside the sunset versus inside the sunset. So here's what I've learned about San Francisco in the day that I've been here, especially at this table with the three of you. Y'all are very weird about your city. Right? Oh, no doubt. <laughs> SF, no sunset, doubt. not sunset, that side of the street. I mean, oh my God, just, you know, Frisco's oh, good, no. Frisco's not. And for only 49 square miles, too. There's that much weird. Yeah, and it's all in a landfill. I've learned that, right? Mm-hmm. Seven, seven miles by wide. seven, baby. South, I, grew up in Detro- I grew up in Detroit, and I'm feeling better and better. <laughs> where I grew up, we only had like one massive. Our landfill in Detroit is uh, Mount Trashmore. Right? That's where I learned how to ski. Mount Trashmore. Literally, that's what it's called, Mount Trashmore. I feel good about it. All right, for this next segment, um, we actually want to We actually want to focus in a bit with, with Michael Casey um, because, it, again, it is rather interesting, right? You have a journalistic background. You were a bureau chief, and we talked about this in Jakarta. You're a yeah. bureau chief in Argentina, um, worked with, with, that, with um, uh, Wall Street Journal for a bunch of years, and you kind of, I don't want to say fall, fell yeah, into Yeah, no, fell into is a great way to describe it. Yeah, I fell into Bitcoin. So, so how? What was the... I think most people fall into Bitcoin, right? I, I don't think you uh, uh, go looking for it. I think you're like, what the hell? So, so I've been doing on a book tour. We plug time, yes. note audience. The book is called, yeah, come yeah, on. It's a, book. it's a book. It's a book. It's a book, right? Come on. Book. This is, this is, this is legit. It's called The Truth Machine. I said it really fast. The Truth Machine. Anyway, Paul and I, my co-author Paul Vineer and I have been on a, on a, on a, uh, um, a book tour and, and Paul's been sort of talking about this concept about how the first thing as a journalist you do to write any story is to say, what is that? That question is actually the starting point of any good story. What is that? Well, actually, the emphasis on the word is. What is that? And that's what Bitcoin was to weird people like me who who have been written or writing about currencies for years. Like, what the hell is that? And so you fall into it by f- what you know by just pure intrigue, and then you immediately dismiss it and think it's ridiculous, and no one earth in, in, their, in their right mind would want to own it. And you sort of learn a little bit more, and you discover that actually there's something really profoundly uh, distracting and, and disruptive about it. And then you realize that it's actually really powerful, and you get into this point. So I just basically went down that rabbit hole, as we call it, and we went through the five stages of Bitcoin, which end up with a holy fuck moment when you realize that this is incredibly profound. And I essentially decided to write a column for ages and then wrote a book about it and then decided that this was too important. When did you write the first book? 
So the first book was written mostly in 2014 with Paul. Okay. Paul Vigneault. Published in 2015. But by that stage, I was already really starting to say, look, journalism is going through a weird... Traditional journalism. I just had a big point about podcasts. But traditional journalism is going through hell, basically. And that on the one hand. On the other hand... At what point in one's life do you get this moment where you feel like you're on the ground floor of a movement, of, of, a, of a transformational concept? So I'm, I'm curious. So it's because we have Adrian. So again, we have some folks sitting around watching us do this. So Adrian from, again, um, South Africa. Did you have that, oh shit, oh fuck, holy moment when it came to this too? <laughs> from the, yeah, so, so my background is in payments uh, as opposed to journalism, but, but it was Same similar, um, a realization that this sold a lot of stuff that was common in, in just my line of work. But yeah, I, I think it, yeah, you go through cycles of, of looking at blockchain as being a big, a fantastic solution to some specific problem, and then you realize maybe you've kind of overshot it and you come back to... Um, the the fundamentals of the problem. Uh, yeah, I think it, it's very overhyped for a lot of use cases, but it's very applicable well, to well, some. Well, before we get to the hype, because I want I want to do I, I, let's just like live in the hype for a moment, because yeah. I know that there's a lot of locking down we need to do, and I get that. I but, have that T-shirt. Let's live in the hype. Live in the hype. Yeah, that live in the hype, baby. Um, it is interesting. I might be overstretching here, but I think that South Africa. And I, my, my big experience, one of the most formative experiences for understanding what money was, was being, as you put it, the bureau chief in Argentina. Yeah. So Argentina, I like to tell people, if you really want to understand how money works, how about finance works, <laughs> go to a place where it doesn't work, right? Foucault, the great, you know, theoretician from, from France, had this notion that you understand math, you understand human nature by studying madness. And, and Argentina is the sort of madness of money. It, it completely breaks down. And in our first book, I have this whole story about trying to get my money out of the country when we sold our apartment. So to me, when I, when I'd always had this vague notion that trust, this lack of trust, this failure of the covenant between the government and the people was this at the core of the breakdown of its money that was go through every 10 years, there'd be a major crisis and then I'd get hyperinflation or massive deflation and something would go wrong. And I, I mean, South Africa has not had that history, but you, but, but there is nonetheless this sort of like very edgy uncertainty to your political experience that I think lends itself to wanting to imagine a world that can have a different structure where you're not dependent upon a political authority. You know, I was I had the luxury of being from a developed country, but I'd really experienced this firsthand. And so when I finally got my head around what was going on with a, you know, distributed trust structure that deferred an important aspect of what we agree to be the set of facts around which society is structured. The transactional record is now a machine, a distributed machine, a decentralized machine, rather than a you know centralized institution. That was pretty profound for me. That was like, holy shit, this is a big deal. And, um, you know, 
I don't know. Was it, is, there, is, there, is there some yeah, comparison that, 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 that at all? That was definitely, I think that's been a common theme in any discussion I've had in South Africa about blockchain is applicability to separating uh, or transparency and uh, use cases around uh, governance and so on, um, as opposed to limiting it specifically to money. So, so here I'm curious. So, Shil, from 500 startups, right? Yeah. I mean, you guys are massive when it comes to looking for these companies to invest in, right? Yep. How big of a component is the blockchain crypto space for you guys? Um, not not that big. I've looked at a ton of companies in the space. I think um, I'm somewhat a value investor and I, I'm not seeing much value. Mm-hmm. Um, what we talked about earlier, right? Yeah. I, think, yeah. I think to it's be an investor in this space, you kind of need to be all in. So I personally am an LP in three different um, blockchain-related funds. Uh, and I've seen... There's just crazy shit. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> I see those. I see those. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, I mean, these I- ICOs are insane. But I think that's already, that's, that's already waning. Thank God. Um, Here, it's not, it's not waning overseas, yeah, by the way. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah, waning yeah, overseas. Right, right. Right. Is it mainly kind of the regulatory side? Part part coming it, yeah. in and saying, all right, it, come yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, I- I've seen super crazy shit. I'm seeing... Companies, blockchain companies, uh, we've seen like, so we have 500 startups has actually funded now 2,000 companies. So we've seen a lot of folks. <laughs> Change your name already, yeah. for God's sake. You're like. <laughs> so we've seen a lot of folks and um, we've seen folks that we funded for previous companies who we think are actually unfundable. Like you shouldn't fund these people. And they're raising money from top tier funds on their new blockchain projects. Right. And at insane valuations. What's We've the seen that one? Isn't that like a kitty block? Crypto kitties. Well, that's, it's, that's a whole, it's a whole other thing altogether. But that's. that's, that's I'll that's, save that for later. Yeah, I'll save that. That actually oh, is a, a, okay. No, but that, there's actually something really valuable in that. There's, yes. a, there's a whole blockchain insider on crypto kitties that yeah. Simon talked about. We'll have a link. There you go, Ollie. Thumbs up. So uh, Internal link. Yeah. yeah Betsy, yeah. we will hook you um, up with that. But, but like, okay, I'll give you an example. I, I met a company. I shouldn't talk about I shouldn't talk about their name. But, um, oh, oh, do drink a beer here. Go okay, crazy. okay. So uh, this company um, in the ticketing space uh, raised money recently from four actually really brand name Sandhill Road investors, and the valuation works out to if you compute when your shares are liquid, you're investing in a two hundred forty million dollar valuation, mm. and it's a seed stage company. They have. Mm. 10 employees. It's it really so is. like what like in what reality does that make any sense? And how are these investors justifying that to their LPs? I can't do that, so I don't. So I've made a couple of crypto investments. Um, I'll talk about one in the fintech space I'm really excited about. It's a credit bureau um, called Springwell. Yep. And they recently just a week ago announced their seed. Yeah, they just announced it uh, a few weeks ago. What is it they're trying to Start solve? Away. Help me there. Okay, sure. So it's an attestation platform. So um, blockchain based. So uh, Nova could put data on from foreign credit bureaus or the credit bureaus could themselves put the data on to this platform to attest data about an individual. So it's an attestation mechanism for individuals. And it's everything, right? It's like you make a payment on time. It's sort of the number exactly. of loans you've applied for the number it's of credit the mobility of the, of, of the reputation yeah. and the mobility of the, the thing that makes the, the, the blockchain component gives you that. So there's, there's a few reasons why blockchain makes sense yeah. in this case and doesn't for most other things, I think. So here is a true marketplace. People are furnishing data and getting paid for that data. 
and then people are buying that data. So for a marketplace, you would want some sort of mechanism. Coin doesn't necessarily need to be the case, but there are advantages to it um, in and also incentivizing the platform, giving people coins that, that they want to make more plat they they want to make more valuable. So makes sense. The token makes sense. And then um, of course Equifax was hacked last year. And really, really distributed system. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's interesting that you say like it makes. Like, I would guess that like every thoughtful investor like you who has got their prize for blockchain, you know, cases that they've really dug done their DD on, they know what they've got. They'll all say this is what makes sense in this case and not that case, right? <laughs> so, so the, the one of the reasons why I think we are so early and why you know to your point you made earlier about it all being like like there's so much hype and we we, yeah. we, we are at this ridiculous moment is because the, the tech itself and, and this is a cliche but we are still in the 80s in terms of the protocol development the underlying bottom of the stack stuff is still so early but unlike the early days of the internet because I think the analogy is not a bad one I know it's a cliche but to say that there's something about the internet of value versus the internet of information that is relevant here um, is that the internet of information was built in absolute obscurity these nerds were sitting away in DARPA and Stanford and tinkering away tinkering at ARPANET right and no one knew what they were doing and now these guys are building this thing in full view and I had this great Twitter exchange with somebody today saying like yeah these poor guys have to build this stuff in the middle of like a Rio Carnival with like samba going on and everything else right because that's what the ICO insanity is all about so you've got these you people are going right up the stack and trying to deliver sort of you know end user solutions when we haven't got it built yet right so so there's a there's a really awkward moment where people are grasping for things that could possibly work, but we don't even have it all built out. There are a couple of great. I mean, like Ripple's a great example, right? Like the I <laughs> get jump on in here, but also, I mean, you, know, you know, there's an actual needed service. And it's just, no, yeah. right? But I, I guess it just it feels like we have a couple of really important, exciting examples that. That kind of explain why maybe there's so much. Ex- right, so I, I, I don't know that I would call Ripple a blockchain company. So, so it's it's, but I don't even. But I also didn't think that 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 distinction is actually relevant. So I actually don't. I actually resent somehow being thought of as a blockchain expert because <laughs> what I'm most interested in is distributed trust. So that's a dramatic way, dramatic way to, you know, to make yeah, that splash. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love that you just said that because let me say something. I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile. You're yeah, a chairman advisory right, board. Right, no, enough. wait a minute. I love what that he says. Here? What do we have here? So, so Michael's a chairman and advisory board for Coindesk. <laughs> and yet you're like, now I don't want to consider myself an well, expert. Son, what, 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 what I okay. mean, <laughs> embrace it. <laughs> Good, here we go. Here we go. All right, what, go what I mean is, like, I think the most interesting thing about blockchain technology, and therefore the real starting point, which is Bitcoin, is that it opens up a new way of thinking about the structure of how we deal with the problem of trust. So, you know. I think at the end of the day, we're using language like blockchain has become this non-countable noun, right? It's like AI. It's everything. The thing that really annoys me is like a blockchain is a ledger, so it should be a blockchain or the blockchain. Yet we talk about it as like you know, I'm into I like wheel. Right, not a wheel or the wheel, but wheel. Uh, blockchain is, is is problematic. What we've done with this language, and and people actually start to use it as a verb, right? To blockchain this or to blockchain mm. that. Um, so so, I, I, I yeah, you can get really kind of fascist about that. I I actually think that 
we're in this zeitgeist where something happened and whether it was Satoshi or even some of the early sort of cypherpunk ideas have coalesced. I was supposed to ask that. You, you, you have to ask that, yeah. I'll have to kill you. Right Damn, now, wait. Okay. Um, Just, you did not answer the question. Right. I did, but, but you can impute Jason, what you want. Jason, you are, right? You've been very quiet. I think sometimes observation is the greatest form of judgment and contribution. <laughs> <laughs> what was very funny about that comment... That, that, so, so for those that don't know, Jason, um, actually, you, you worked with Senator McCain back in the day. You've oh, been in we're D.C. Going deep, deep in the we're going to go deep there. Wow. So I'm going to pull that out. So you have worked. I actually heard that not only did you work. Oh, God, here we go. But there was, there was a chance that he would become your father-in-law? No, not true. <laughs> that um, is true. It's not. I've seen the so there's, there's, there are definitely no picks. <laughs> um, I don't know where you're going with that. Here's where I'm going with that. The answer you just gave was very politically um, correct. And you, ah. you motivate you you use your verbiage Listen, because if I, I use the term no spin zone, I'll end up with a thirty-two million dollar oh, judgment against me. Yeah, the funniest so part about you to go there. Yeah, but the funniest part about that for those that know Jason, as we do around this table, is that as it, when it comes to a a pound the streets, get the word out, and vote, and from a from a, a Democrat side of the house, you got but to work with McCain and understand that you did well. I'm going to segue into the China thing in a minute. Right. We're talking about that must have been your There's segue. a hook. My segue is going to go there, but first, um, I wanted to just ask on this table and actually in this home, I always love to ask this by raise a hand. How many folks in here own Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ether, Ripple? So the majority. You got to get you the only one that doesn't. The majority. John, 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 John. Wow. Wow. John owns John coin. Which is this little smart ass. That sounds uh, coin like it could go a whole bunch of different directions. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is really cool. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. He got. All right. Here's the one question I want to ask, and then we're going to get off of this. I know when we go to blockchain, you get so tired of this, Michael. Um, it, breaking the two up a little bit between Bitcoin and that. But Bitcoin uh, today is at $6,766. That's where it closed, right? At the beginning of the year, it was... Uh, it was well, 19 at this peak, like late, late December, yeah. So let's call it 19. It was pretty, yeah, yeah, 19. So is this just a correction that we all expected to see? Is this the hype cycle? What What is it? So, so I, I do this thing with a, a chart every now and then when I, when I put up my, my slides and I, and I, and I show Good people- Good God, it's a flying like, pig. The, those of us who were in Bitcoin in 2013, late 2013, we saw this chart. It was like, I'm fucking believable. Look at this thing. Like, we're like, wow. Everything's perspective, right? If you zoom out, it, it, it's kind of the same thing. So, so I, I, I think, and I'm not, this isn't meant to be a price projection. I'm not a hodl for the end. It's going to go to a hundred thousand, going to go to a million, but I don't know that calling the death of Bitcoin because we've gone from 19,000 to 6,000 is relevant given that we, we in, in the same sort of like virtually the same ratio, did it back in 2013 from 1,000 to 200, right? There's this, yeah. it's, it's pretty much the same thing. And, and so we are in, a, look, I'm talking my book. This is a transformative technology. This is the most profound change in record keeping for millennia. We've gone from having centralized keepers of the record to a decentralized system. We've got no idea how it works. There's no idea what the use case is, what the business case is, to your point, Shield. But ultimately, there's something really big here. So what do we do? We just throw mad money at it and see what, what sticks. Um, this is what we always have done through history. 
at any big transformative moment, whether it's, you know, electricity or, or, or the dot-com bubble. And the dot-com bubble, by the way, unleashed free capital or cheap capital to build out all the infrastructure that we then built the future of. Well, I look at this room, right? Almost it. Well, actually, all of us in this yes. room, right? When it comes we to the come, dot com, we owe, we our, owe, our, we owe our, yeah. our careers in many respects to the to the fiber optic cable, to the three G investments, to the to the whole data farms that were built to, during that cheap money period. To that ecosystem yeah. that you mentioned, I so, say that right now what we're building is social infrastructure, and what, what what we have is a lot of money being thrown at these tokens, and yes, ridiculous pets.com type ideas are being thrown out, but what we're doing is laying down. The equivalent of the fiber, which is this code, it's it's open source code that one day somebody will come along in a couple of years' time and go, cool idea. What if I meld it with that other open source bit of code and I build some other functional something else? It's an extensible platform. There is a lot going on here that's much more than just hype and madness. There is hype and madness, but underneath it, something's being built. So your mad money comment made me smile because it's the perfect segue, Jason to our last bit that we're going to talk about. All right, in closing. So in closing, and I'm not even going to go on the trade war side, but obviously if, you, if you're in the U.S. Aside from that, story. how was the play Mrs. Lincoln? Is yeah, that what but, you're leading but, with? But the mad money side of this, right? So one, can you give us a little bit on, on your role and what, for, for our American listeners that aren't familiar with, sure. with the company? Uh, very briefly, I left leading fintech partnerships at PwC, where I got to know a lot of great people like yourself, John, Shio, others in the room, to help Pingon technology expand its footprint globally. What does that mean? Pingon is a giant conglomerate of 32 business units across financial services verticals most known for insurance, but also expanding to include a bank, a digital wealth management platform. We have health, te- health tech companies. Uh, we have health medical process and software companies, but we also have smart city companies, auto home companies. Uh, they say there are 32 business units, Sam. There are. So why is that an interesting place to join now? We are looking to find global solutions from startups and mature players that want to go to the Chinese market. So mad money, mad money. How much is mad money? We got two mad monies. We have the ping on Technology Fund, which is two billion renminbi. It's oh, been around for five, 450 million. Been around for That's a few years. We've invested in SpaceX and eToro and Payoneer, to name a few you might know. That is a pure venture fund. We also have the Voyager Fund, which is headed by a guy called Jonathan Larson, uh, who comes yes, out of banking, which is I'm sure who you met. Yeah. That's a billion USD to be deployed in the next few years, uh, likely and most commonly at the growth and growth equity stage. So what we're doing is we're trying to invest in the market um, from the top down in companies that could potentially partner with us uh, and across our business units while we also forge partnerships with companies that we might not also be able to write a check for. So you kind of have the reverse play because, Sheila, I'm going to come to you on the, on the investment side and, and we'll talk about being an SF. I sound so cool now. <laughs> In fun set in Frisco, in Frisco, baby. Yeah. So, so coming from this side to invest in China, but I want to do the yeah. reverse because Jason, you live here, yeah. right? Working for that company. So, is it bringing that money here and looking for, yeah. for those? So it's yeah. it's two things. There's a deal flow aspect, which is not dissimilar from what Shield does or what other folks in the venture space do, looking to help the fund identify companies that fit its goals right. uh, to invest in and can grow into the business. But it's also to look with an eye to market fit from a technology 
stack and, per, and people perspective, honestly. So we have a business that's going to IPO later this year on the Hong Kong exchange. It is a cloud platform that offers services to financial service companies across Southeast Asia and mainland China. And there's a couple places where we want to plug in leading global players to solve some of the challenges that we're looking to provide for smaller FIs across the region. My job is to figure out which companies have the right people, the right technology, and the right approach to go to our market and access our 200 million customers. So, Shil, I'll look at you then. Yeah. So, is this the proverbial round peg square hole? And I don't know. Is it when you look at this to invest, right? So, this yeah. reverse engineering going back into China, I always think, I don't know. I think it's difficult to fit into that system. Is that true? Or am I blowing this out of proportion? Yeah. So, as an investor, um, I would lo- love to invest in China. For, I can't for a couple reasons. One, I can't invest in RMB yeah. because I could never. Well, I could invest yeah. in RMB, yeah. but I couldn't get it back into dollars if I wanted to. So I can't invest. And two, like when I've investigated companies there, um, the companies that people like me tend to see have hyperinflated valuations. Mm-hmm. Anybody with like a couple of Baidu engineers gets massive valuation. That being said, uh, all the, like. I just want to talk about Ping On for a second. Yeah. It is such an incredible company. Everybody needs to learn, learn more about this company. That's my job, Shield. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you can help. Cool so I spent a bunch of time with yeah. Erickson and Jessica Tan. Yeah. Um, and I sent them to your office. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> can I say something? Because I'm reading this. I'm going to make sure this is right. Ping On Insurance is the world's largest, most valuable insurer worth U.S. $217 billion. That's right. So I'm the first. I'm the first U.S. employee. So I have a lot of uh, did I mention that need for megaphone, if you will. So there's all these different stories to tell. Um, I didn't want to stop Shield from telling his, but can I throw in one thing? Yeah. What people don't know about us is that on top of insurance and financial services, we're doing things like diagnosing diseases through facial scanning. Yeah. And that we're doing things like smart contracting in the auto insurance space, where if Shield and I got in a fender bender within 15 minutes, we'd have digitally filed claims with the police, with the city, jurisdiction, with our insurance companies, uh, payment would be estimated within 5% of the correct total based on AI algorithms. And we would have had money provisioned to our WeChat account. And done on the blockchain. (laughs) (laughs) I got the, eh, all right. I hate to say this. This this happens every time. We're out of time. And and I'm sorry, folks. Here's what I will tell you. And and when I tell you it goes by quick, it really does. We're going to give links out to every single person that was on this show. Highly recommend you take a look at what they're doing. Um, Jason's got like $3 billion to spend. You should talk to him. <clears throat> Nova Credit, we love you, right? A wonderful company. 500 Startups needs to rename to, what did we say, 2,000 yeah. Startups? 2,000 Startups, yeah. And, and, and Michael, you are an expert. I don't care what anybody says. Your ego, you, you need to believe. Can I tell you, believe in yourself. Adrian from Ripple, we got to thank you. John from Kasasa, you're still an ass, but I do love you. Love you, I love you too, man. I want to, and for our listeners, I want to thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this show in, in SF in Frisco. Don't move here. Yeah, and don't move here. Go to Austin. For our listeners, we want to thank you. We hope you enjoyed this special show in SF and in Frisco. As always, if you want to get in touch with us, you can on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, or YouTube, or Badu, evidently. Just search for Fintech Insider or the 11FS team. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And please, please, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. That's how we get the news out. That's it for now. Stay tuned next week for our next show. And thank you so much to our guests.
Who cares? Michael's got to do a lot of editing. Sorry, Michael. But you know what?